This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Wyndham. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. Welcome to the Tax Alpha Solutions Podcast, hosted by Matt Chancy. Matt is a tax consultant, author, and certified financial planner with almost two decades helping his clients grow their net worth. On the show, Matt brings together an array of specialists to share with you their experience and success along with strategies of the 1%. Matt Chancy is with Coastal One, member FINRA SIPC. And now, here's your host, Matt Chancy. Jared, I appreciate you being on here today. And um, look, I know you're an attorney. I know you're a CPA. I know you're an LLM was an advanced designation in taxation in the legal field. So, you know, uh, introduce yourself. Tell me a little bit about you and, and, you know, tell me how you how you got to the firm, kind of where you're at today. Sure. Okay. Yeah. A little bit about where I came from, what um, and what I uh, how I wound up uh, where I am. I started Uh, When I was young, I knew I wanted to be an international attorney of some kind. I had a great foundation in languages. I've spoken French since I was nine, Spanish since I was 12. Um, I lived in Brazil for two years. I served a a full-time mission in Brazil. And uh, I I started Russian uh, for undergraduate at, at BYU. So I knew I wanted to handle international issues. And so with that, I tried to focus specifically on international law, which ironically, as as a side note, is very different from uh, intermestic law, which is private law between companies versus international law, which is public law between countries, right? And how countries interact with each other. So anyway, um, I was so dead set and focused on that. I, I went to law school and as I went through law school and, and had a clerkship right out of law school and started to go into private practice, I kept thinking, how am I going to turn this into cross-border transactions into international? And it, uh, it wasn't going where I wanted it to go, but I learned to work with uh, my practice and, and I started working in the employee benefits area, which took me into tax and took me into uh, a lot of family business planning and um, handling their employee benefits and, and uh, structuring the, the family companies and, and how to operate those and, and then transactions and, and M&A with those family companies and then legacy planning, uh, estate planning, and so on. And during that time, I learned that an LLM in tax would be super important. So I went with that and I earned my LLM. And after that, that takes us to about 2010. And I was at a couple of different firms during that time. But after that, uh, almost on a dare, a friend said, well, if someone can pass a CPA exam, I think it's Jared. So I... uh, (laughs) (laughs) Your friends need to figure out how to have more fun in their spare time. (laughs) So um, uh, at that point, I had sat for, uh, I had passed four bar exams. And uh, I said, well, CPA exam. Okay, that's what we're doing. So I I went forward with that. During the time that I was studying for the CPA exam, I 
I happened to to also sit for the California bar exam. So I got I got a fifth one out of the way. Um finished out my CPA work just recently. And uh what I found is that as you know, law is very Latin based and math, uh, accounting is very Greek based, you know, you have the the Greek math. So it it does suit me where I pull together, I translate the languages between Latin and Greek, between the legal practice and the accounting side. Um, And so I spend a lot of time educating accountants or educating attorneys on one side or the other, and how that translates to uh, what's recorded in the books, or how does that function in a purchase agreement. And Oddly enough, a lot of that has led to handling cross-border transactions, both on a, on a domestic scale, state to state, and uh, on an international scale, country to country, with a lot of these companies, their mergers, subsidiaries, um, moving cash in and out of different economies, and ensuring that it's done so smoothly and, and in compliance with, with all of the, the rules and regulations out there. Very interesting. Very interesting. You know what? It's funny. I was consciously aware of what you said with math, Greeks and law, Latin, but never actually heard anybody articulated that way. Right. And it's funny that you say that. So so you can tell the difference between you and I. So somebody asked me, why did I learn all the tax stuff I learned? Right. Mm -hmm. And so my thesis was that, hey, if I ever walked into a bar or restaurant and there was a maybe a woman that I wanted to buy a drink sitting at the bar, but I realized she was from another country, I would want more than anything to know how to speak that language to be able to buy her a beverage, right? Mm -hmm. Well, CPAs and attorneys are speaking another language. And if I want to buy them a drink, I kind of need to be able to speak their language, right? (laughs) Right. So that was why I kind of went down the tax path and have the education and training that I do, because that wasn't how I originally started off. But so similar uh, roundabout way kind of to what you're doing. So (laughs) yours is more elegant. (laughs) (laughs) Well, it's it's super important to be able to uh, define these terms for, for folks. I think it's fantastic. And, and I believe that it's inherent in everyone to want to create something, whether it's creating order or creating chaos. But for a lot of these folks, it's creating a business. I want to create um, a, a sign company or carpentry or whatever it is for a business owner. And in that creation, they, that's what they want to do. They don't want to get bogged down with the, how do I do this? Or, or how do I record my accounts payable and, and all of the admin and the headache that comes with that. So anything that we can do to make that easier so that they can just focus on what they want to create, then I feel uh, uh, fortunate to be a part of that process with them. Good. Very cool. I didn't love the love the way you described that. You're right. There's a lot of people that have a vision of I want to build this business. I want to build this thing. I want to make this thing. I want to sell this thing. I want to market it. I don't want to have to keep books and records of how I did all that <laughs> stuff in the process. Right. And it it happens so often. In fact, I just had a call uh, this afternoon where the business owner they build the business, build the business, and now. Um, Hey, we're going to close. We're selling the business and we're going to close in two weeks. But oh, by the way, we have all of these outstanding due diligence items that, you know, there's an outstanding stock option plan that we're not sure if it's compliant or, or 
how to cash out the options or do we convert them to stock for the employees? What do we do? Um, what, what are the tax consequences to us, to the employees? Um, what happens? So uh, that's where we come in and, and that's where I like to create order. That's my, my creation. Um, so that the business owners can focus on what they've built and, and what they're going to do with it. Sure. Do what they do best. Makes sense. Understood. So tell me, with all that being said, in so many different ways you can apply your skill set, what's the favorite way that you like to apply your skill set? Like, you know, what type of work do you work on that you just, that, you know, you're like, oh man, I this is, this is my sweet spot. I really like it, you know? Oh, that's, that's a great question. And I've thought about that a lot. And I spend a lot of time in my practice, um, like I said, educating, teaching. And so for my from my perspective, um, I function best um, where I'm in the uh, the design and the strategy um, element of it. And I've I have folks that work with me, associates, partners who can handle the drafting, right? And and then where they put the pen to paper, and then once the draft is done, it's turned around, and I'll review it and make sure everything's good, whether it's. Um, a, a draft of a tax return, draft of a plan document, draft of a transactional document, draft of minutes, operating agreement, whatever it is. So where I function best, my highest and best use is in the strategy and design component. And one thing that I spend a lot of time disabusing um, clients or potential clients or even attorneys of is the, um, the perspective that I come in to replace a someone on the existing team, right? Mm-hmm. Where a client says, I already have my M&A guy, or I already have my CPA, or I already have my bookkeeper. Um, I already have my tax person. Um, I can do that if that's what the client wants, but I also don't have to do that. I can come in and provide that, that additional expertise because what happens nine times out of 10 I go in on a transaction and uh, I know there's a bit of a tangent, but the corporate attorneys haven't spoken with the CPA. Mm -hmm. They haven't done a dry run on how is the return going to be prepared at the end of the year? Or because most of the time what happens, both parties agree, okay, we'll we'll coordinate, we'll cooperate with each other on, on preparing the returns. But you get to April 14th next year, March 14th, and the parties can't agree and the seller is the one who gets the short end of the stick because they didn't think this all the way through sure. or because 1231, the client didn't think to close the books properly or whatever it was that they had going. So number one, I don't have to replace the person on the team, but I will certainly bring in an additional uh, dimension to it. And number two, just because I'm there, that's not an extra expense. In fact, it's, it's savings for the client because it's it's deductible <laughs> and we all love that <laughs> it either look it either comes to me or it goes to the IRS take your pick that's right <laughs> and number 2 i typically wind up with the savings where they save more in their their potential tax liability what could have cost them um, versus you know what what they save Sure. So those are two misconceptions where, and going back to where you asked, where's my sweet spot, um, where when I sit in that sweet spot and I'm able to take advantage of that strategy and design in the overall transaction and and the overall structure that 
uh, I'm able to leverage that position for the benefit of the clients. So oh, I, I get it. I was on a phone call this morning with uh, that has an attorney in Florida, a CPA in Florida and an attorney in New York. They have never spoken to one another. And right. there's massive gaps in what's being done and what's not being done. And they're just not communicating with one another. And they're kind of all blaming the pointing the finger. At one another. Right. You got to pull everyone in. And typically uh, that's where I do enjoy the a little bit of, of what I do have behind me to be able to sit the client down and say, okay, look, here's what you're facing. If you don't, here's what's going to happen. If you do, you can take your pick. I'm not a salesperson. I'm not going to pitch anything. Sure. You can pick either one. I can tell you what you should do, but it's totally up to you. Um, well, the easiest way to sell something is to be knowledgeable, educate a client on what their options are, the pros and cons of each. They have to pick a path, right? And doing nothing is a path and has consequences, sure. right? So like, here's what you can do. Here's what you can't do. You know, here's if you do nothing. Here's the consequences, the pros and cons of each. Which way would you like to go, right? Like, yeah. they have to make it a choice. They're making a decision one way or the other, whether they realize it. I got a, along those lines, I got a call from a client. Um, it was late last year, oh, August, September-ish, I think, he sold his company um, nine figures uh, early last year. And leading up to that time, I was telling him, look, you've got to reorganize. You want to move some things out. You're, you're going to have a problem. And in that transaction, he ended up writing, I, I believe it was about a $10 million check to the state of California. He called me and he said, I never want to do that again. <laughs> Well, you, you made the choice to not do anything. And that's what happens. Yeah. So. yeah. I, I have clients. I have clients that I have conversations with and I say something along the lines of, um, you know, you think that there's a magic wand that we can wave over the top of your life and magically all the taxes or whatever, the complexity disappears. I go, no, you're materially going to have to do something different than you've ever done before in your life to get the outcome that you want. Are you willing to invest the time, the energy and the effort to understand what that new thing is, right? Sure, sure. You're not, if you're not, you're going to get the default, you know, write that big check. <laughs> <laughs> right. And, and I will add, um, I was listening to um, one thing that, that uh, you had identified on a podcast, and I, I don't remember the tool, but it was a situation where you had suggested a strategy and the client opted not to because it's higher taxes, but they were more comfortable. Like, this is the money. I'm going to be happy with this and I'll pay the higher liability. And, and sometimes what the client wants is peace of mind. That's and, right. you know, it, there are some strategies where you hear all the time about the fights that the IRS picks mm -hmm. and often the taxpayer loses. And if there's something that's on the edge, um, there's full disclosure. Hey, look, either, either uh, we may have to disclose this transaction to the IRS and again, attorneys don't understand how the return is prepared, but the accountants aren't always in the room when the deal is or the structure is negotiated. Sure. So you get to filing your tax return and, oh, this is a position that does not have substantial authority. So it needs to be disclosed on the return, which is going to throw a flag for the audit. 
was that planning, did that planning occur during the course of preparing the transaction structure? So um, sometimes clients will just take the, the higher dollar and, and take the peace of mind, which is perfectly fine. I agree with a good night's rest. Look, I explain that all the time. That's kind of where, you know, um, finance and behavioral finance intersect, right? Behavioral finance. So finance says you should probably have a mortgage on your home because you're getting 3% debt really cheap. And if you can redeploy that capital somewhere else, there's a solid arbitrage opportunity. Behavioral finance says if I can't sleep at night because I'm ever because I know that I have to make that mortgage payment the first of every month, then my quality of life suffers because I'm looking at this opportunity over here. And you like, you know, and you have to be able to say, I would rather sleep better at night. I will give up the arbitrage to sleep better. Right. And that's and that's okay. There's nothing wrong with that. Just know that that's the decision you're making when you're making the trade off. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So I remember the fact pattern in the podcast you're talking about. Um, Yeah. The client said, I never thought I would have this much money. I never thought I would sell anything like this. I Mm -hmm. fully funded my retirement, saved every dollar I've ever had. We're taken care of and I'm okay paying $4 million to the IRS. Like this other stuff is new. I don't understand it. I don't want to invest the time to wrap my mind around it. I'll just write the check. Right. So, but all I could do is educate them on what their options were. And they were like, no, I'll just write the check. So, yeah, I I had a client recently who fell into uh, well over eight figures many times over, uh, completely not used to that and still can't believe he's beside himself. So he, he said, well, I'll take a modest two. I'm going to buy a house so that I have a roof over my head. Sure. Even though the interest earned might, you know, throw off more, but he'll have a roof over his head. And he said, put the rest into into something conservative. And I'm just going to leave it at that for now. I mean, great guy. He's in, in his 30s and yep. whole life ahead of him. Yeah, I've got... You know, my clients primarily come from like CPAs and attorneys. And I have what I call is kind of an origin story. When you have this person that figured out how to do a thing and made an astronomical amount of money in a very short period of time, that just kind of, they didn't see, their advisors didn't see, nobody saw, but it just, it all clicked right. You know, mm-hmm. like those are really fun stories to listen to. You're like, you did what? You know? And that wait, turned- wait, wait, wait. <laughs> Exactly. Right. Exactly. So let me pivot on that and ask a question. And and you can say no comment if you want, um, because I'm going to ask. So I I looked at your, you know, the types of people that you work with. And, you know, you've got corporations, partnerships, private entities, high net worth clients. You've got, um, you know, Fortune uh, 100 company, professional Olympic athletes, judges and politicians. So which are your favorite types of clients to work with and which are the ones that you do the work because? it pays well, but they're just not your favorite deal. You don't have to answer oh. if you don't want, but I'm super curious. It's a That's a great question. Um, and I think most folks would agree the, the best clients to work with are the ones with no ego or little ego. Um, it's great to be confident. It's great to have an ego where, where you need it on the, whether that's on the field or on the stage or at the podium. But um it's very different when it's not as fun to work with uh, someone who doesn't, I don't want to say doesn't want to do what you're suggesting, but uh, feels the, uh, that they know better or the, that they don't have to, the, the rules don't apply to them. 
Maybe that's what I'm looking for. I, I call it some people acquire an irrational sense of self along the mm, way sure. because they, they became really good at one thing and they instantly extrapolated that information to every piece of their life. And they go, I must be the best at everything I touch in this whole world. I, yeah, I think that's an excellent observation. I, I guess I would, my adjustment would be, I would call it a disproportionate sense of self. Okay. Yeah. Uh, fair, fair. Where, yeah, you're right. I'm, I'm the best in this. And therefore they take that proportion and extrapolate it to everything else, but that doesn't track. Yeah, it doesn't track because you haven't spent the time, the effort and all that in the, in all these other worlds and done all these other things to the level of that expertise that you develop by, by figuring it out. So no, I, I agree. I know I can't sing, so I don't. (laughs) (laughs) Come on. You sing in the shower and in the car, don't you? No, no, not even there. Come on. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I started and, and this I do love. I started playing the piano at, uh, at nine also. And, um, uh, the reason I play the piano is so that that whole thing hides me and I don't have to sing. <laughs> so. All right. If somebody put a gun to your head and said you had to sing a karaoke song, what are you going with? Happy birthday. It's <laughs> <laughs> about as far as I can get. <laughs> Solid. <laughs> it's a great, it's a great answer. <laughs> like seriously, no one's ever gone there with that. I, oh, that's a good one. That's a good one. Yeah. Um, man. So tell me about, so there's so many things that you've done, you know, sports venues, construction, financing, lead counsel on sales and purchases. You know, there's a lot of stuff that you've been involved in, you know, kind of talk, talk about a really cool transaction that you were involved in and some of the obstacles and challenges you faced and how you overcame mm. that stuff, or, you know, maybe a neat story. Walk, walk me through something like that. Wow. Um, let's see a neat transaction that I've done. Um, well, I, there's something that I really enjoyed. Uh, came around last year. Yeah, last year, early last year, almost a year ago. Nothing, and it, it wasn't significant. So nothing uh, really newsworthy, but it showed a lot of what I, uh, what tickles me. And that is where there are American folks. Uh, they have a particular connection to Brazil, and there are. Uh, real estate development options down there. So how do we structure the outbound transaction? How do we structure the Brazilian inbound? And I I have a very close working relationship with a firm uh, down in Brazil, um, a national firm down there, and vice versa. There are also a number of Brazilians who are, uh, they're pooling their capital together to bring the cash up here and invest in real estate projects up here um, going back and forth. And so with each um, transaction, we've managed to develop um, some sort of uniform structure, a default structure for, uh, to facilitate the cash flow, to establish the bank accounts, to form the partnerships so that that all flows very smoothly. Um, And of course, each, case has the potential to be different. So there may be some separate wrinkles. Um, You form uh, multiple U.S. partnerships uh, in order to have uh, a few different investors going 
going down there and then bringing uh, the cash back on shore or you leave it offshore, you move it to a a favorable jurisdiction um, offshore so that you can leverage that capital for further uh, development projects elsewhere. Uh, The reason that that was uh, intriguing to me was for a couple of reasons. Um, Number one, we dealt with tax structuring and I, I spent a lot of the time explaining uh, those principles, uh, those concepts in Portuguese. So um, explaining the American tax system uh, to uh, to Brazilians and, and vice versa. They explain from a practical level, here's how Brazilian taxes apply. And so we're able to take the two systems, which by the way, the US and Brazil don't have a tax treaty. So that in, in that vacuum, how are we working to, to bridge that divide, which um, actually, just by the nature of their systems, it, it works well. Very, works well together. Um, it's going to be interesting. Just as a side note, uh, here going down the road, it looks like uh, Brazil's might be taking a little bit more of a left turn. So there may be some some adjustments to their tax system based on the the upcoming elections. Um, if uh, if the current president doesn't stay in, uh, it looks like there's a, a popular left-leaning candidate who might um, be making some changes there. So anyway, um, with that being said, that was very interesting to me at a, at a teaching level. And then also at the going back to that concept of creation to be able to work with not some huge real estate developer, but, but with uh, ordinary middle-class Americans who just want to participate in the economy. Sure. And, and to be able to help them take some of what some of the capital that they've accumulated and put it into a, a secure investment, um, which it's not the stock market, but it's real estate investment, fairly reliable in uh, somewhere where they love and, and somewhere that I have a connection to. And, and uh, to be able to, to help them go through that process, I just I love that to facilitate the the cross border flow of of cash and allowing middle class folks to participate in these economies. Sure, you said something that so ironically, um, I have lived in Brazil for a little minute, um, <laughs> long time ago, and you said that I you said that you explained uh, taxation to American taxation to Brazil, Brazilians in Portuguese. And the reason I ultimately left Brazil, honestly, was I got a little overconfident in my ability to speak Portuguese, right? (laughs) I could speak conversational. I could go order at a restaurant. I could fill up the car with gas. I could do certain things. But I borrowed a car of the people of some people I had met down there with friends with. And I drove to the store one day and I didn't tell anybody. And I got back and they all freaked out on me. And I'm like, why are you guys all freaked out? And they're like, well, you don't have any papers. And if somebody Mm -hmm. would have pulled you over, you couldn't have explained why you were in a car. Your your Portuguese isn't good enough to explain why you're an American citizen driving a Brazilian's car and what you were doing. Like you could have ended up in jail or something and we might not have ever have found you. Right. And, (laughs) and I, and it didn't dawn on me until they said it that way. And I was like, Oh yeah, you're, yeah, that's, (laughs) 
so that could have been a problem. That could have been a problem. They are notorious down there for their red tape, for for their bureaucracy, um, which uh, is is a little unfortunate. But we're doing our best to cut through that. Understood. Understood. So that's so, so funny because I tell people that all the time. I could not have had a legal conversation in Portuguese to get myself out of that situation. Whereas you're over there explaining American tax law, which is complicated as I'll get out in Portuguese. So our Portuguese is yeah. not the same. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, it's, I think I think length of time. Once you're there for a while, you're good. So, so you said a couple of things that made me think of a couple of questions. So are, I'm sure you're familiar with, are you involved at all in EB-5? EB-5 investment visas. Sure. Yeah. Um, yeah. Not, um, I, I can't say that I've done too many recently, um, but I, I understand the program and I've worked with it in the past. Sure. It's been a couple of years, I think. I figured you had to of talking, describing what you're describing the way you're at. I'm like, you're all over that. Sure. You have to kind of play in that sandbox a little bit. Sure. But then you said something that has come up twice in the past two days in conversations I've had with clients and or centers of influence. Mm-hmm. Um, you talked about onshore and offshore. And I think there's a big misunderstanding of the potential uh, benefits or opportunities of whether to be something onshore and offshore. So if you w- would go into that a little bit, because you're, sure. I don't hear many people bring that up in a conversation you did. So I want to lean into that a little bit. And I want to pick your brain on that. Tell us the pros and cons of one over the other, how much of it is real, how much of it is um, uh, optics, you know, cause some people are like, yeah. Oh, I'm offshore in this whole thing. And I'm, I'm you know, I'm so fancy. Yeah. Right? Is there yeah. really a benefit for being offshore or is it kind of just a headline type deal? Yeah. So a couple of things with that onshore and offshore, um, I think the biggest misconception um, in the terminology is that um, the word offshore connotes I'm a millionaire. Um, it doesn't take a whole lot of capital to move a bank account to the, the Bank of Toronto. I mean, that's, uh, it's, it doesn't take much to do that. So with that in mind, uh, it's, it's a lot more uh, entering your cash into um, non-U.S. economies is a lot more accessible to the average American than they think. And why would somebody want to do that? Well, that's where uh, uh, I was actually headed with that. The reason why is to it's similar to an investment. You spread your investment out, right? You're not going to put everything into Apple stock. Um, you can have some stocks. You can put some into real estate. Uh, and as as you spread it around, it's like a garden. You move your seeds around over here and give it space. It'll grow and it can grow. And you can participate in, uh, in, in where you want to participate. You, you've got to stay with, um, with Warren Buffett's primary rule, which is invest in what you know, right? Sure. So if you're going to, uh, if you have an itch to, uh, or an affinity for a particular jurisdiction, um, go for it. Take a look at, at taking a couple hundred dollars and opening a bank account there or seeing what it takes to get there so that then you can participate in that economy and grow your connection with that. Um, why would you want to do that? Uh, it's not doom and gloom. The U.S. isn't going to crater tomorrow. Um, it's more of an opportunity for the individual to grow. And what better way to, to, than to grow in an area where you want to? 
Hey, I love, I love Singapore. I love the culture. I love the people. Great. Well, then what can you do to create a connection there? And what can you do to, to better become more connected to those people? And, and if you want to have a second place there, or is that where you want to retire? Or it could be that that economy is growing and, and there's a good cash flow potential there. So it's it, it really depends on the individual. Uh, well, I think you, well, I think you hear a lot of times, right, that that people from other countries are trying to move money into the United States, right? Yeah. So then, when you look at the opposite side of that coin, and you go, well, if they're trying to move their money here, why would an American be trying to move our money into another country, right? What's the benefit? They're That's, trying to come here. Why would we want to go there? What's the benefit of doing? It's it? it's the same concept, but the difference is that. And, and I don't want to get culturally stereotypical, but um, as Americans, as we move our cash out, we have a better understanding of how a capital market works than those who are bringing their cash in to invest here. They're coming to, first off, learn how to participate in a capital market and then participate. For us, the, the learning curve, we're already starting a little bit ahead because we understand what to do with the capital. Sure. And, and we understand where to where to place it. For example, these these folks who understood real estate development, that's been hot in the US. I mean, that's that's a, a great market to get into. And so they understood the process to um, purchase an entire apartment building, which then the apartments were sold. We're not renting these, they, they were sold and they turned a, a very nice profit on that. So when you hear, going back to your core question, onshore, offshore, um, another uh, misunderstanding, and it's a heavy misunderstanding, is that offshore equals illegal. It is. Or, or, or maybe not illegal, but shady a little bit, right? Like, yeah, in the shadowy world a little bit. Yeah. Um, yeah. There's a difference between tax avoidance and tax evasion. Um, Some people say it's 10 to 20 years, right? <laughs> that's the difference. Um, but uh, when you hear these stories, and the IRS loves to feed on that fear. They love those headlines where the Panama Papers came out or the Paradise Papers oh, yeah. uh, that have just been dumped. Um, Make for good TV, though. Oh, yeah. It makes for great TV headlines where whatever mafia head was involved in um, in these shady dealings. And oddly enough, there's always a law firm at the center of it. <laughs> um, you mean all lawyers aren't shining knights? <laughs> <laughs> which which I, I will take this opportunity. It's an odd context. But one reason that, that I did want to um, have my CPA license, one reason that I got that was because there is no accountant client privilege. And I thrive, I love the attorney-client privilege. And to be able to handle or absorb the accountant information, because you need that in order to best service your clients. Yes. But when a client hands that info to their CPA, it's fair game. And I, I don't enjoy that being turned over to the IRS. So I wanted to make sure that I could stand and be self-sufficient to receive that information from my client. And if the IRS ever did happen to come knocking, it's I, I, I can't disclose it. I'm sorry. Um, super, so, super interesting nuance there. I like that. Protection there. But going back to the, the offshore illegality, um, it's absolutely not. In fact, there are 
plenty of procedures and it's easy enough to disclose what you have on a form to the IRS. You disclose it and that's what it is. Now, there are a couple of, of considerations as you're looking at different jurisdictions. Um, one is whether there's a tax treaty with that jurisdiction. Are you going to get the benefit of paying taxes to that jurisdiction in the U.S.? A, a second thing to, to remember is that the U.S. is one of the U.S. is in the minority. And again, here's the headline, but I'll, I'll warn you, it's not the full uh, set of information. Sure. But the headline is that the U.S. is in company with um, with Libya and Iran and North Korea as uh, or Cuba, sorry, as uh, one of the few jurisdictions who tax their uh, citizens on all of their worldwide income. The rest of that uh, headline is that so does Italy and I think Switzerland, um, and there are a couple other more benign countries, but but the headline is that um, the U.S. is is uh, along uh, on par with some of these other regimes. The truth is, the minority is that um, the U.S. taxes its residents or its citizens on worldwide income wherever it's derived from. So, if you move your money offshore, you just have to remember there is a U.S. tax liability. What you're seeing among the the millionaires, billionaires is, and and this is what makes the headlines, is that they're considering giving up their U.S. citizenship so that they don't have to pay the ever-increasing U.S. taxes. And um, honestly, I think that's just for the media, that's, uh, I think that's blown out of proportion. Um, it's not a meaningful or significant amount of people that are making that move. No, it's not. It's not. And, and really this, this talk. Are you trying of, to say that the media blows things out of proportion? <laughs> <laughs> what spectacular stories. Um, and, and this talk about the millionaires and billionaires tax. Uh, with the way that Congress is is constituted right now, I don't think we're in any danger of that. We're quite a ways away from that. There may be some states that impose a one-time tax, uh, some of the more left-leaning states, but at a federal level, I don't think we'll get there just yet. Um, I think the next, the 2022 midterms are going to be interesting. Um, no one's going to going to pass really high tax hikes before then. And then you're rolling into 2024 based on whoever wins the majority in 2022. So we have some of these rolling political seasons that are really going to impede a lot of uh, huge tax development over the next few years. Uh, I don't think we're going to see it. It's going to be more by inches. Uh, well, the, the infrastructure bill was supposed to be three and a half, four billion dollars, and it's still not signed and it's being whittled away at by the day. Right. So mm-hmm. like big headline, big splashy headline when it started. <laughs> and, you know, now we'll see what gets across the finish line. But it's all sure. Done, sure. Right? And, and I again, with what makes headlines, but I uh, without getting too political, I hats off to. Senator Manchin and Senator Cinema for holding the line and making sure things the party didn't get too out of hand on either side. You know, I I consider myself uh, more uh, middle of the road on uh, most of it, and and really that's where uh, everybody needs to meet is in the middle. 
I think we all really are kind of in the middle. I don't think the media wants anybody to be in the middle. They force us to the edges, right? I think naturally we all kind of fall somewhere in the middle, but it's just the world around us feels like it's pulling us to one side or pushing us to the other. So, you know, it's funny. Moderation um, doesn't sell ad space. Moderation does not sell ad space. It's it's all about clicks and eyeballs. And moderation does not generate clicks and eyeballs. Does Correct. So, you know, I've had people from California, some wealthy clients in California that have said, you know, California, you're paying for the lifestyle, the, the, the weather and the beaches and all that. And I'll never leave. And recently there's been talk that the top marginal rate in California could go over 60 percent. And they're like, you know what? I'll domicile somewhere else. I'm not staying here. I'm like, I thought you were never going to leave California. Like, well, there's a there's a line to everything. Right? Sure. Yeah. Yeah, I am. Um... I love California. I, my, my parents are from Long Beach. I, I went to games at the Great Western Forum. Um, I saw Pepperdine, right? Your undergrad, I think, was from Pepperdine? Yep. I love Pepperdine. Oh, um, love that place. And um, I'd be living in California if it weren't for the people in the politics. There's just too many and too much. And uh, yeah, being a Nevada resident for so long before I came to Philly, I worked a lot with I call them tax refugees from California mm-hmm. coming over the border to, to Southern Nevada, um, just trying to get away from the tax climate in, in California. Oh, yeah. I found it really interesting the first time I went around Lake Tahoe because half of it's on the California side and half of it's on the Nevada side, right? You can buy the same house and it's cheaper on the California side because the carrying costs associated with it are so much greater Mm -hmm. that it it actually drives the price down a little bit. We're on the Nevada side because the taxes, everything are so much less. It's it's, Mm -hmm. it's a higher priced house, right? Which is really strange because it's the same lakefront property, so to speak, right? Yeah. Interesting, weird dynamic driven by factors that have really nothing to do with the local real estate, you know, just strange. You brought up tax treaties. You know, we heard a lot of talk today about some of the the tax treaties that we have with Malta, like Malta pensions and stuff. Are you familiar Mm -hmm. with some of those tools? I've heard of those. And and, um, my uh, initial response to those is be very, very careful. Be very, very cautious. And I get that a lot. Um, I get the I heard's, you know. I sure. <laughs> I was I was talking to my buddy, and I heard. I heard that uh, that that I could do this. Most of the time, one of two things happens is um, where when you come across a unique structure or a transaction, uh, the first thing you want to be is is highly suspect. Let's slow it down. Sure. And let's take a look at how many years has this been around. Uh, how focused has the IRS been on it? What has the treatment been in the past? So you start to go through that and how reliable is the local government? That's one of the the concerns with Malta there. Well, there was even a 60 minutes piece on the potential fragility, I guess, of the Malta government, you know, Mm -hmm. per se, and how they manage their tax treaties and stuff like that, because it's almost become an international tax haven. So if anything, that should give you a little bit of pause. You should say, okay, well, let's, let's dig a little deeper if we're going to consider this. Right. Right. And, and what you saw um, back in the early 2010s, so around 2012 or so when the IRS flooded the, uh, the Isle of Man and, and Gibraltar with uh, examiners and with agents going through and looking at uh, what Americans had in those jurisdictions. I think that's that's something. It's just going to be 
a matter of time that they come along and, and they start to handle that uh, with Malta and maybe even some of these others. I know the Channel Islands is another one that, that might be on the on the table there. So, you know, it, again, going back to the offshore connotation that it's negative, um, offshore is not a bad thing, but where do you go offshore? Are you going to some of these tax havens where you're going to be a sitting duck for, for the IRS? You, you know that's going to come along. Um, sure. I'd also indicate, uh, going back to the list, Panama will, will, is another one that's long been on the IRS's radar and it's not coming off anytime soon. So it's, that's why I say when you have a genuine connection to some offshore jurisdiction, go for it. And you are familiar with how that jurisdiction works. And as long as you report it, um, go for it. You're diversifying your assets. Yeah. I, I know people that have bought real estate in Colombia because of the arbitrage and the pricing opportunity, and then Airbnb'd it per se, or VBERO'd it for mm-hmm. international kind of vacationers or whatever, and made a great return on their investment because, you know, mm-hmm. the dollar was able to buy something substantial down there for, you know, sure. what you couldn't have got here, you know, so, yeah. and how they marketed stuff with it, with people paying with international dollars from other places, much stronger currency. So I've seen that play out familiar with what you're talking about. I've never heard anybody articulate it that way. If you're familiar with the jurisdiction, you know what's going on there, you like it, you understand it and find an investable opportunity. That's one thing. To just park money in a place because you think there's tax benefits associated with it or is a completely different reason for doing so. Yeah, be very cautious. Very well articulated on that. So that spins me to another question. So we're all familiar with kind of the IRS dirty dozen list, right? Or the things the IRS says. I I was just going to mention that on my last answer. Yeah. 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 Okay. Look, see, look, we're like kids yeah. spirits here. We think like, so, okay. You go, I'm going to let you talk. I don't want to preframe your context on that. Like whatever you want to say, but no. you know, I think a lot of people see stuff on the dirty dozen list and they're like, Oh, shouldn't do it. You know, can't do it. You're 100% going to get audited or whatever it is. Mm-hmm. Um, what's your perspective on that? What's your take? I have a few takes. In fact, I, I like your wording. Um, in fact, my website, taxtakes.com, um, I did a, a series of posts on the IRS's Dirty Dozen list last year when it came out. Um, what was it? Was it August? I think it's, it usually comes out in July. I think it was in August this year. And it was a series of uh, dozens that came out. I think it was a four part series and there were like, I tried to break it down to three in each part, but anyway, um, a couple of things that I noticed with their dirty dozen list and uh, number one, they talk about scammers and phishing and, and phone scammers that happens a lot. Um, I'm not super, uh, overly concerned about those for two reasons. One, my clients tend to be a little bit more sophisticated than that. And if uh, if you're falling for the IRS calling you on the phone, I think you have some bigger problems maybe. But the stories though behind those are very sad because they do target those who don't know better, which is unfortunate. So that's one observation I had. A uh, second observation that I had and a bit more troubling is how the IRS is deputizing return preparers by requiring them to, to jump through so many hoops of due diligence 
before filing a return or holding them responsible for not asking the non-obvious question. Um, it's, it's one thing to ask an obvious question. I, I see you when uh, you spent 10 months traveling last year and here you're claiming four children as, as dependents, you know, that makes sense. I, I'm going to question that as I'm preparing a return. <laughs> so let's talk about the bad parent that you are. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. Talk about bigger problems. Um, no, that, it's one thing for a return preparer to, to ask um, probing questions, but it's another to put a higher burden on them where they are uh, potentially responsible or where their entire livelihood could be stripped away because uh, they didn't ask something that was uh, perhaps another step further than what's required. Because the IRS is so strapped for resources, they can't enforce everything. So they're going out to the, the private preparers who they have clients who are paying them to prepare a return. And the IRS is saying, no, you also work for the government and we're not going to pay you. And you have to do our job for us by gathering the supporting documentation and maintaining it in your files, just in case we want to come by and take a look. Well, now hold on. If the client signed the return and the client took responsibility, you've got to start with the client. But I do appreciate and don't get me wrong. I, I do appreciate to some degree where return preparers aren't as educated maybe as they should be, or they're trying to get clients by, um, by showing that they can scam the system or English is not their first language. I've had those, but I bristle a bit at this um, conscription into, uh, into IRS ranks of return preparers. That uh, it, it, it uh, I, I don't think they're going about it uh, the right way just yet. They're doing what they can with the limited resources they have. They're trying to figure it out, right? Look, uh, we're all, into some capacity, we're all trying to figure it out. We get some stuff right, and then there's the law of unintended consequences. There's the parts that we get wrong that we didn't realize we were going to be wrong until we implemented whatever it was. And they were like, oh, man, didn't see that coming. Perhaps, and, and let me pull, let me tie that from and, and this is important um, because you you look at the dirty dozen and these return preparers who are on the hot seat, and you also look at the recently created fraud enforcement office, number one, and number two, the IRS moved its there was a special investigations division, they moved it so that it's all headquartered in one division. And that division is in the SBSE, small business uh, division. So it tells you where they're focused. They're focusing their fraud enforcement on those return preparers and on, um, on the small businesses, because that's where they're placing those resources. They're letting LBNI, they actually moved that, that special investigation from LBNI over to um, the small business division. So that's a little bit concerning um, that they've done that. They're tax exempt, TEGE, that's not receiving as, as many resources as perhaps it could because there's a lot of uh, tax exempt, I don't want to say abuse, but 
um, misunderstanding and misapplication uh, that occurs there. But it's easy for me to sit here and throw rocks. I think uh, uh, I do think they're doing the best that they can. Um, but the answer isn't necessarily more money. One concern that I've got was the push for the, um, the, the bank account information, right. That they were pushing for as part of the, as part of the bill, right. The, the build back better bill. And the reason that that causes concern is because the IRS already knows your bank account information. It's been making direct deposits to your bank account if you give it the information for your refund, right? Sure. All the time. The stimulus checks have been direct deposited. So that information is gathered under the pretext of we're going to give you money. But now they have that information. Now, if the IRS is receiving this bank account information or receiving more information on the transactions and it's automatically calculating what your 1040 is supposed to look like, which it does. If you don't file a paper 1040, the IRS automatically for you. for you, right? So let's say they do that. They automatically determine you have a liability. They have your bank account information. They know how much money's in there. You this see is a slippery right? slope. I see where you're going. <laughs> Talk about a slippery slope. <laughs> well, it's just more efficient if we just take it, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. You were going to owe it to us anyway. We can see all the numbers. Then we don't have to hire tens of thousands of employees. It's all automated. Really, trust me, this is good. Come on. <laughs> I, I don't like where that's headed. Um, for the record, I was quoting the IRS when I said that. <laughs> I, <laughs> You're good. Um, that's a slippery slope where we're just turning over the, the operation of our finances over to the IRS. That's the ultimate end game, which... I call it the largest bureaucracy in the, or the largest division of the largest bureaucracy in the world. Well, so let me, let me ask a question on that and pivot into that for a second. (laughs) You know, there's been an argument over the years about somebody going with a flat tax type system to get rid of all the complexity and stuff. I think one of the major arguments to that is, isn't the tax industry and the related businesses around it, the third largest industry like that exists? Like if you wiped out the taxation industry and all the ancillary pieces to it, there'd be so many people and businesses out of work. Like if you just simplified it and said, like if that happened, right? If they had all our bank account information, they filed a proxy return, they took the payments out and all the humans in between that had to touch that process went away, right? Like Mm -hmm. we'd have such massive unemployment at a huge scale of people that are trained and have technical ability, that would not be good for our society as a whole. Well, I've I've thought about that. You know, that's uh, let's say, you know, you have the the robots are coming for your jobs thing. Right. Um, And so does that put industry professionals out of work? Every time I pick up the tax code, I think, wow, this is job security. But uh, (laughs) think think about that, though, with a flat tax. I, I think it would be at least on its face. That would be fantastic. This is easy. Right. You pay this. You're done. Yep. But then you get rights. You get your freedom of speech, freedom of religion. You get um, a lot of these other uh, rights that are that are automatically that are our fundamental rights, and those start to come in. And so we start to take a look and say, well, but what about? That's fine, flat tax. But how do we get to that number? What about charitable donations? What about my 
business fees or, or what about do I count the penalties that I receive uh, restitution, criminal restitution? They paid it to me. Is that part of that 10% or do I get to exempt that? Right. You get the, but what abouts? So and even in a flat tax world, there's so many what abouts that we need, a what, we, need a what right about we need a what about police at that point. Mm-hmm. And you can't discount the insurance lobby. Oh. What about your insurance premiums? Sure. No, no, those aren't taxable. Well, we wind up right back where we are. And that is, that's a, that's a huge consideration. And when I start to think about that, I, I think, I don't know that we're ever going to get to a simplified tax code. Um, the machine's too big and it's too politically interwoven, right? With all these different special interests and stuff, you, it's just, you're never going to unravel that thing. Right. Which is, which is job security for you. (laughs) (laughs) Well, and and you look at the volume of, of PLRs and, and tax court cases and the IRS notices and, and the regs that just keep coming out. That's all independent of statute, Right. Even if the statutes stand, you've got all of the interpretations uh, that that go along with it, um, and that continues to develop every single day. and And then you have COVID come along, and that upended the tax code as far as PPP loans are concerned, and uh, you know SBA loans and the and the stimulus payments and the paycheck holiday, uh, the tax withholding on that. From the EIDL the, stuff yeah, that went out, EIDL, like all those programs, yeah, EITC, yeah, all of it. Um, so even if you try to get back to a reset, it's not going to stay there for for a millisecond. No, no. So let me go back because we said something that I want to go back and I want to touch on it. So look, I tell clients this all the time. Just because somebody is an attorney or a CPA, what they've done is they put themselves into a different game. There's great attorneys, there's bad attorneys, there's the middle and there's the mean, right? There's LLMs. It's just another game. There's great LLMs, there's okay LLMs, and there's all in between. By definition, there's an average or a mean. You just kind of put yourself into this new ecosystem or this new sphere of the way you're looked at, right? So what I think that boils down to is if you're if you're going to get a great outcome doing something, and I always make this analogous to like, if I were a chef and I were going to make a meal, right? Mm -hmm. Number one, I want a great chef that has a ton of expertise, been trained and knows what he's doing. Number two, I need a whole bunch of uh, quality ingredients. I want best in class ingredients to go into it. And I need an amazing recipe. I need the formula to put it together. It takes those three pieces to win, you know, to get the blue ribbon at the fair, but for making the best pie kind of right. Right. So, so following that logic, if we take a best in class human, whatever licensure designations, requirements, they need to be that best in class human. Hmm. If you apply them to a tax strategy that might be listed on a dirty dozen list, is there a best in class way to execute on something that may or not be frowned upon, right? And have it work for you because you did it the right way with the right people, with the right ingredients, disclosing and everything the right way. Clearly, you can take a bad person with bad intention because I ask people this all the time. I go, if you set up a 401k for your business, is it possible to do it wrong and have tax consequences associated to it? Most people will tell you, no, it's not. That can't happen. And I'm like, no, it absolutely can happen. I can't tell you how many I've had to correct. Right. But that's something that everybody knows about, right? 401 1k it's in the tax code well what about 831b that's on the dirty dozen list consistently can it be done right so that actually is 
You see what see where I'm going with that? I <laughs> I kind of do. I guess the the short answer to that is can it be done right? Um, if it's in the code, it can always be done right. Yeah. The question is, uh, is it appropriate for the client at the time? Is it, does it get them to where they want to be? Is it cost effective? Yeah. Um, you know, there was a time when DB plans made sense for everybody. Yeah. They don't anymore. Um, is it, is a DB plan right for the client? Uh, probably not right now. Cause these um, are just, cause these are just tools. Like they're just tools to solve a job. Like people understand it when you talk about like construction, is it a hammer? Is it a level? Is it a nail? Is it a saw? You pick the right tool for the job. I think in the tax world, they don't understand these things are really all tools that serve a different purpose and do a different job in a different way. Right. That's really what they are. Yeah. And so the answer to your question is the eminent attorney's answer. It depends. (laughs) It depends. I would have expected nothing. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, you, you you can't get uh, you can't get a straight answer out of me. Well, there. that's better than putting your CPA hat on because you would have just said no if you'd been talking like a CPA. That's true. That's true. <laughs> that's true. I love the story about the um, what the hikers are are lost and they run into someone else on the trail and they can't figure out where to go and and the the person there that they run into he says, well, you're halfway up the mountain and you're at, at this latitude and this longitude. And, and then the hikers say, well, you must be an accountant. And, and he says, how could you tell? And they said, well, what you told us was accurate, but it gave us no information. <laughs> okay. I shouldn't have laughed so hard. <laughs> Somebody's I, I, I had another professional watch one of these one time and call me on the phone the next time we were in a thing. And he said, um, I'm not really a fan of what you said about people in my profession. <laughs> I'm like, whoa, whoa, wait a minute. Context, please. Like, sure, sure, sure. And I do hear that. And, and I, I will say, I, I think I know what, what he was talking about because, you know, you're and you're very aware of where the lawyer's role is and where the CPA's role is and, and where their limitations are. Um, which makes sense. And, and it doesn't work if folks don't stay in their lanes, but it also doesn't work if folks don't coordinate across their lanes. That's right. So I can appreciate where you come from. And too many times in the, look, I believe that all clients believe that they would benefit from joint planning where their CPAs and attorneys and financial advisors and insurance agents and everybody that's in their little world talks to one another and communicates open and freely. It doesn't happen very often that way, right? Because too many times when you put all those people in a room, there's egos that start to collide. And one person starts to say, well, what I have to do for this client is much more important than all the other stuff you have to do. And doesn't realize the blind spots that they may or may not be aware of because they may understand those things, but they're not experts in them. And, and, And if they don't have that mutual respect for the peers that they're having those conversations with, the client's not going to end up with the best in class solution or best in class outcome. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I come across that a lot. Um, I love working with tax attorneys because I, I'm on the other side of a lot of deals with many tax attorneys. And the common thread is that when we talk, we're working together. We, we come together. How do we solve this? Sure. Um, the M&A guys, the litigation guys, they like to throw the elbows and, and get the piece of the pie. Right. And, and that's their job. That's what they do. And I love them for it. 
we're a little bit more of the, um, here's the issue. How do we, how do we solve it? Cause look at that thing on the floor. That's kind of interesting. What do you think? I don't know. Well, what if we poke it a little bit? You know, um, it's, it's fun to work together with other tax attorneys and, and other folks who are, um, as you said, best in class. Um, sure. I, uh, there are some terrific guys that, that I work with and it's great to learn from them. And, and hopefully I, uh, I managed to bring something to the table for him too. Well, look, we've gone well over an hour and this wasn't booked for that, but it's okay. Like, look, I could talk about this nerd stuff all day long. Like I love this man. I really could. This is so fun. But so let's, let's kind of wrap up towards kind of pushing towards the close a little bit and say, is there anything that I didn't talk about that we should talk about? Any things that we should ultimately know? Uh, you want to talk about yourself a little bit or your firm or what your area of expertise or clients, like, you know, anything that would make sense in that category, yeah. you know, have, have at it. Well, I, I appreciate you um, taking the time, and um, I know we've spent a lot of uh, a lot of the time talking about me. So I'm, I'm going to set that aside for a minute, and I do want to underscore the um, the role that tax plays in what we do and where and what we build. It's uh, a lot of the time uh, folks don't consider tax until it's time to file your return or um, for those business owners until it's time to sell the company. Uh, when that, and, and the CPA only pops up twice a year. And that's a consistent problem that I see over and over is that um, there isn't ongoing coordination with that client's team. And, and that's critical is to have um, regular uh, communication there. But the intersection of, of tax with what we do every day with what it represents at a constitutional level. Um, it really affects us more than you think. Uh, it takes dollars um, either out of your pocket or uh, it, it benefits somebody else and is necessary to a certain degree for, uh, for a stable society that, that we enjoy. And whether we do that here, uh, whether we participate in, in the American economy or uh, any other economy abroad, it's necessary to consider that as, as part of what we do. Um, and it's not just something that comes around once a year. And it, it doesn't also, it doesn't have to be a burden that keeps you up at night. It's a necessary evil. And we don't have to be scared of it. Uh, just because it's it's cash doesn't mean that we have to treat it with some kind of sacred cow level of respect. It's uh, it's it's part of what we do, and so for that very reason, it's important to have someone who you can pick up the phone and call. I love texting my clients. I do it all the time, middle of the night. Uh, in fact, last night I had a client looking to buy a company. I was texting him at two a.m just going over P&Ls because that's how we build and that's how we provide for our family and our posterity. And we secure that, that life, liberty, and pursuit of happiness that we claim to, uh, to have a right to uh, where we are. Yeah. No, I agree. Look, I don't think anybody has a problem paying taxes, right? I think the issue is because, look, we all want to support the place we're at. We want to support the republic, right? Like, Mm -hmm. But at the end of the day, I think some people care how many taxes I pay, and especially when they feel like they're not being used 
prudently, right? Yeah. And I think yeah. that's where the friction comes in. If we always knew that the other people on the other side of the equation were doing the best thing with our dollars, I think there would be less friction in that. But I, and, it's, I and it's important to note with, with what you brought up, and I know we're, we're heading toward the close. There are two things that you mentioned, and then there's a third uh, that I new topic that I do want to introduce just briefly. But um, with what you brought up, we don't have to pay more than we have to. And it's perfectly legal to minimize your liability just because it's demonized in certain presses. In fact, uh, there is a Supreme Court case where this, the, the opinion says, I take that back. It's not the Supreme Court. It was, I believe, the Second Circuit, uh, where the justice, the, the prevailing opinion says that Americans are not obligated to pay more than what they have to for taxes. So taking advantage of, of certain planning techniques is not bad. Um, so there are ways to minimize your taxes, number one. Number two, um, you said utilizing it properly. And there are ways around the political process to ensure that your dollars go to that properly, that proper use. Um, if you have a specific purpose that you want those dollars to be used for, there are ways that we can channel, we, we can develop a canal to ensure that those dollars go to where you want them to go. Um, and, and as long as it's not a boat. What's that? As long as it's not a boat. <laughs> as long as it's not a boat. <laughs> no, um, what, what I'm referring to is our, our, fortunately, our process provides for foundations. Sure, absolutely. That, that serve certain purposes. And so instead of paying the IRS, you pay the foundation. Um, that does what you want. So there are those two things. Um, one, one more, and I'm sorry, I do apologize. Um, but new topic is is this digital currency and non fungible tokens, and and it's a new development. Um, the IRS is trying to figure out how to grapple with it, and uh, I, I think there are. Uh, it's just something to be aware of, as you mentioned. It is on the dirty dozen list. It is a focus. Uh, that the IRS is watching out for. So um, as it evolves, we we need to make sure that we're mindful of how it's being reported because uh, we've got to assume that everything is is being reported now. Um, just because digital currency purports to be anonymous, it's not. It's proven not to be. Um, within a matter of hours, there are, are some of these digital currency crimes recently that the FBI has managed to get records and solve within hours or days. So um, it's a great new economy uh, along with this new world that we started talking about, but we need to treat it with respect. Well, you know, you said something earlier in the call about um, not everybody should have all of their uh, concentration in an Apple stock, right? Right. And the same thing is also applicable with cryptocurrency, right? Um, Just because you could doesn't mean you should, right? And and so they're tools. And, you know, I think in the long term, I think there'll be a lot of utility in the blockchain and cryptocurrency and things like that as it evolves. Um, But, you know, just like 1999 wasn't the beginning of the explosion of the internet being a thing forever in perpetuity. You know, there was a crash and a correction and a lull period where we had to figure out how it had real utility. I, you know, um, I wouldn't be surprised if the the growth trajectory of crypto, blockchain, and all that is somewhat comparable to that to that uh, you know adoption strategy that kind of went with the internet over that twenty year period. So we'll see. Right. Yeah. So we'll see. I agree completely. Well, this was a lot of fun. I would do this anytime with you, Jerry. <laughs> this is great, man. Yeah, anytime. Let me know. Um, you're a great hang. And uh... 
Thank you for listening to another episode of Tax Alpha Solutions brought to you by Matt Chancy. We hope you enjoyed listening to this week's guests and insight. If you liked what you heard, please consider subscribing wherever you listen to podcasts. 